God doesn't believe in atheists. Instead, according to the Apostle Paul, to arrive at the position of an atheist or an agnostic, you have to suppress what God has made evident to you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do all people who have ever lived know that God exists? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1, titled God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Throughout history, atheists and agnostics have existed, all denying for various reasons that God exists. One of the main reasons claimed by both groups is that there simply isn't enough evidence to support the existence of God. But according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, God himself has given evidence throughout the entire world of his existence in what he has created. Simply put, Scripture teaches there are no real atheists or agnostics. Those who claim to be so are without excuse. And as Tom will show today, both groups know God exists, but they choose to suppress and deny that reality. Let's join Tom Pennington now for more, here on The Word Unleashed. Man has always been fascinated with various aspects of God's creation, and one of those is with the stars. Astronomers have identified about 88 constellations. Forty of those date from ancient times, and we don't really know when or how those original constellations were identified and named. All we know is that they come to us through the Sumerians and then through the Greeks. In the mid-19th century, an Englishwoman named Frances Rolleton tried to answer the mystery of the constellation. She came up with a theory and later wrote a book in which she argued that the constellations as we know them are actually vestiges of a primal gospel that God presented to man before he gave us his written revelation. A few years later, in 1882, an American pastor by the name of Joseph Seiss embellished her theory and wrote a book entitled The Gospel in the Stars. Ten years later, in 1893, English theologian E.W. Bullinger wrote the witness in the stars. And that idea has been around since that time. In fact, even in my lifetime, back in 1989, D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, further popularized this idea in his book, The Real Meaning of the Zodiac. These books all argue that God has woven the gospel message into his creation, specifically into the stars. Now, I think those ideas were, for the most part, well-intentioned, but at the same time, they are completely wrong. They are contrary to the Scripture. God has revealed the gospel only through special revelation. That is, through the Scripture. That's why when Paul finally gets to Romans 10, he says, how shall they hear this good news without what? A preacher, without someone to tell them. 
Now, I think the foundation of what became a bad idea, the gospel and the stars, began with a good idea. And that is that it is true that God has revealed certain truths about himself through what theologians call general revelation. That is, there are truths God has revealed generally or universally to all men, even those who don't have a Bible. It is general revelation that Paul uses in Romans 1 to indict all immoral pagans. They can never say, not one person can ever say, I didn't know anything about God because I didn't have the Scripture. In fact, in the passage that we come to today in Romans 1, Paul tells us that all men know enough about God from observing creation to leave them completely without excuse when they stand before their creator at the final judgment. Now, let me remind you of the flow of Paul's thought. After some introductory comments in the first 15 verses, in verses 16 and 17, he introduces us to the theme of this letter. It is the gospel. And of course, at the heart of the gospel is the message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he introduces that in verses 16 and 17. And then he moves, beginning in verse 18, to show us that that gospel message is absolutely crucial because apart from the gospel, all men stand even now under the wrath of God. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. After introducing the gospel message in verses 16 and 17, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, beginning with this text that we have just read and running through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul sets out to prove man's universal need for the gospel. He sets out to show us that Every human being without exception needs the righteousness that God promises in the gospel, the righteousness that comes to the sinner as a gift from God received by faith alone. Every man needs that message. And he begins with the immoral pagan. That's really the message of chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and running down through verse 32. This is the person who doesn't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. And against such a person, notice verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Literally, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. In other words, there is an expression of God's wrath happening right now 
on this planet. Now, the rest of chapter 1 falls naturally into two parts as it springs from that idea that begins verse 18. First of all, Paul answers the question, why is God's wrath revealed against immoral pagans? That's verses 18 to 23, paragraph we just read together. Why is God's wrath revealed? The second part of this chapter is how is God's wrath revealed against immoral pagans? And that's answered in verses 24 down through verse 32. So first of all then, Paul anticipates and answers the question, why is God's wrath revealed? And he explains two reasons in this paragraph that God is angry with every immoral pagan. And we noted this last time. First of all, he is angry because of the immoral pagan's willful rebellion against God's law. His willful rebellion against God's law. And that rebellion falls into two basic categories. First of all, ungodliness. Notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, we defined this last time and noted that it really is made up in its constituent parts, ungodliness, of three things. It is a lack of fear of God. It is a lack of love for God. And it is a lack of worship of God. Those are the three things that God, our creator, demands of every human being And we have not done that, and therefore we are ungodly. Now, ungodly doesn't mean irreligious. In fact, as we'll discover in this text, most ungodly people are very religious, but they are ungodly because they do not fear the true living God, they do not love the true living God, and they do not worship the true and living God. So, ungodliness. Another expression of our rebellion against God's law is unrighteousness. Notice again verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. As we defined it last time, unrighteousness is the lack of conformity in our thinking and in our speaking and in our behaving to the law of God. A lack of conformity to God's law and ultimately, therefore, to the character of God on which his law is based. So God's wrath is being revealed from heaven because of the pagans' willful rebellion against God's law, a rebellion manifested in ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, there's a second reason God's wrath is being revealed, and that is the immoral pagans' willful ignorance of God's person. Not only is is he willfully rebellious against God's law, he is willfully ignorant of God's person. Now, last time we began to examine this point by just looking at the brief summary of it that Paul gives at the end of verse 18. Notice how he describes all men as those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. By truth here, as is clear in the context, and we'll see today, Paul means the truth about God that he has revealed in his creation. Sinful man holds that truth down. He stifles it. He tries to silence his voice. In other words, men are willfully ignorant of God's person. Why? Why would man respond that way? Well, verse 18 explains, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress the truth that we know about God because we love our sin. 
Now, that's where we left off last time. And today, as we continue to examine the the pagans' willful ignorance of God's person, we move from the brief summary at the end of verse 18, and we consider Paul's detailed explanation of this point in verses 19 to 23. The key issue here that frames the foundation for the argument is, look again at verse 18, the end of verse 18. How can Paul say that someone who doesn't have the Scripture is suppressing the truth. I mean, how can you suppress something you don't have? That's the immediate question. And so Paul sets out to answer that question. And he begins answering it by saying, God has revealed himself. The fact that God has revealed himself is why I can say, They suppress the truth. Every sinner knows about the one true God. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. In a moment, Paul is going to explain what the sinner knows about God, and he's going to explain how he knows. But here in verse 19, he simply asserts the simple, incontrovertible fact that he knows It is evident within them. It is evident within them. The Greek word translated evident means visible, clear, plainly seen, open. It is a fact that every sinner knows. Because God has revealed the truth about himself to them. Look at how verse 19 goes on. Because that which is known about God is evident, is clear, is visible, is plain within them. How can Paul say that? For, because, here's why, God made it evident to them. Here is the reason the sinner knows. Literally, the Greek text says, for God caused it to become known to them. God caused it to become known to them. God has made certain truths about himself clear, visible, and plain. Now, that is a defining statement by the Apostle Paul. Because think about the people in our world who either deny or doubt the existence of God. What do they say? The atheist denies the existence of God, and he does so based on the lack of evidence. The agnostic doubts the existence of God. And on what basis does he doubt? Because there simply isn't enough evidence. God's response in both cases to the atheist and the agnostic is that simply not true. He has made certain things about himself patently clear to every human being. Years ago, John Blanchard wrote a book with a fascinating title. I love this title. Perhaps you've heard of the book. It's called, Does God Believe in Atheists? Now think about that for a moment. The answer from Romans 1 is absolutely not. God doesn't believe in atheists. There's not one person who is an unbiased, convinced atheist. Instead, according to the Apostle Paul, to arrive at the position of an atheist or an agnostic, you have to suppress what God has made evident to you. You have to suppress what you already know about the true God. So when did God reveal this truth about himself to them? 
And, and what exactly did he reveal? And how did he reveal it? Well, Paul answers all those questions in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now notice, Paul first of all answers when God revealed himself. He deals with the issue of when God revealed himself. Verse 20 begins, for since the creation of the world. Now the Greek word world, cosmos, is used in a lot of different ways in scripture. And here, even the leading Greek lexicon agrees that it's used in a broader sense than merely the planet earth. It's used of the universe, everything in the universe. Since God created the universe, in other words, from the beginning of human history, from the time when evening and morning marked the first day, certain truths about God have been clearly seen. That's when God revealed himself. Notice what God revealed about himself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, stop there, his invisible attributes. Now, God is by nature a spirit, and therefore he is invisible. The scripture is clear about this again and again. For example, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ, says he is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul breaks out in doxology about God, and he calls him the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. So God then is invisible. However, Paul here argues that the invisible God has made certain of his invisible attributes visible. In fact, there's a wordplay in the Greek text, which is, that's basically what he says. He's made his invisible attributes visible. Now, what exactly has he made visible? What, what of his invisible attributes, those qualities that are true of him that are invisible, what of that has he made visible? Well, notice, first of all, his eternal power. That's really a reference to two separate attributes of God, his eternity and his power. His eternity. It is clear that the God who made this world is eternal. You say, how can that be clear from the creation? Well, think about it. We all understand and know from the record of human history, we study in human history, and even if we haven't studied history, but we live in some remote jungle somewhere, we know there have been generations before us. And yet, the world goes on, it's sustained. So there is indication in the world that the one who made all these things is not susceptible to the same decay and death that the creation is. He is eternal. But specifically, he says, his eternal power. That reality in God that enables him to do whatever he decides to do. His power. That's clear. How is that clear? Well, think about it. I mean, look around you. The obvious grandeur of the earth, the vastness of the heavens makes it clear that the one who made and sustains all these things must have power beyond our ability to conceive. 
Let's just take one example. Take, for example, one of the more common occurrences on the planet and yet one of the most potent examples of God's power, the thunderstorm. We know those all too well here in North Texas. Think about a thunderstorm for a moment. At any given moment, there are nearly 2,000 thunderstorms occurring on the earth's surface. Scientists estimate that the average thunderstorm releases the energy equivalent to a 20 kiloton nuclear weapon. Now, folks, we can't even begin to imagine the kind of power it takes to sustain a single thunderstorm, much less 2,000 thunderstorms every moment, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for the entire period of human history. And yet that is just one little expression of the power of God. In fact, in Job 26, 14, Job calls the entire universe and everything God does in the universe, every expression of his power, the fringes of his ways. What we see in the universe hasn't even begun to tap the power of God. It's the fringes of his ways. Job calls it a faint whisper. What we see of the power of God It's like a faint whisper. And so he says, who can understand the thunder of his power? If everything we see is just a whisper, who can understand what his power is really like? So God has revealed his eternal power. Also, notice Paul says in verse 20, his divine nature. This is a comprehensive term. The Greek word that's used describes those qualities that are normally associated with deity. In other words, Paul is saying, man knows there is a God. He knows that there is an eternal, immensely powerful, supreme being who made all of these things. And oh, by the way, Paul argues in a different place that creation shows us that 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 supreme being is a personal being and not a force. When he's speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he, he argues this way, he says, now, even, your, even the poets, even the, the, your poets, the Greek poets, have admitted that we are the children of God, that man is the offspring of God. And so Paul says, being then the children of God, as men, we ought not to think that the divine nature, there's our word, we ought not to think that the supreme being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. You follow Paul's logic? He's saying, look around you. It's obvious that we, human beings, are the high point of God's creation on this planet. That's patently obvious. And therefore, that means God must be a personal being like us. He's not like an inanimate object that he's made. He's not like an animal. He has to be like us in that way, a person, a personal being. So God then has revealed his invisible attributes, specifically his eternity, his power, and his deity, his divine nature. Next in verse 20, Paul addresses how God revealed himself. How God revealed himself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They've been perceived. They've been noticed by all men. But notice Paul takes this a step further. 
Not only are these truths about God perceived or noticed, but they are understood. And specifically, they are understood through or by means of what has been made. In other words, all men understand those things about God by looking at what he's made. So the sinner then looks at everything God has made, and everywhere he looks, he sees God's eternal power. He sees his divine nature. But he not only sees it, Paul says he understands it. He grasps it. He comprehends it. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Visit us today at The Word Unleashed. Visit us online to find many other helpful resources, most of which are free, including Tom's books, Sunday morning and evening sermon audio, video, and transcripts, audio, video, and sheet music from hymns that Tom and his wife Sheila have co-written, several teaching and lecture series, podcasts, and Faithful Stewards conference information. All of that is at The Word Unleashed. Visit us today. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. (laughs) 